T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Well, welcome to the show. John Rosemond here. The show is called Because I Said So. We're going to just jump right into things. But if you'd like to call us, the number is 404-419-6499. You can email us at radio at rosemond.com. And if you want to uh, obtain more information about my ministry, you can go to uh, rosemond or johnrosemond.com. In last week's show, I was talking about the fact that everything bad about American parenting today uh, had its start in the 1960s. Today's parents don't realize they are the inheritors of uh, a parenting paradigm that was cobbled together by the mental health community in the 1960s and a paradigm that has been extremely destructive to children, to parents, to marriages, to families, and by extension, to America. So, uh, I did get an email from a fellow who, uh, obviously intent upon lowering my self-esteem, speculated that uh, I either have yet to emerge from the Stone Age or just crawled out of the bomb shelter my parents stuffed me into in 1959. He refers specifically to my contention, which I made last week, that children should not be allowed to express their feelings freely. This was one of the parenting mantras that came out of the 60s. Children should be allowed to express their feelings freely. And I have said many times, no, people who express their feelings freely are behaving antisocially. These people are obnoxious. The proper training of a child trains the child to uh, control his feeling expression. Um, anyway, this fellow uh, sarcastically asks, like love, maybe? Well, since he mentioned it, yes, children should not even be allowed to express feelings of love freely. The problem with this fellow's thinking is the problem in contemporary American parenting. He implies that children should be allowed what adults are not allowed. In so doing, he inadvertently nails the problem. That very child-centered philosophy is the prime reason for the general degradation of parental discipline and therefore child behavior since the 1950s. Once upon a time, when a child of even toddler stage did something rude or antisocial, 
He or she was told in no uncertain terms to stop, to be quiet, to apologize, to give it back, leave the area, or whatever was appropriate to the situation. Silly attempts to reason, as in, you're making bad choices, Billy, were not a feature of the Stone Age parents' vocabulary. And in this way, children learned early on to control the expression of certain behaviors and feelings in certain situations. And that is how, by the way, a child is socialized. And it is in a child's best interest to be sensitized to social norms as early as possible. Take love, since the fellow raised the issue, for example. If it is inappropriate for an adult to simply blurt out, I love you, whenever the feeling strikes, then I submit it is inappropriate for a child of certain age and in certain situations to do so as well. In both cases, the spontaneous expression of feeling, in this case, love, may cause the individual who is the object of said emotion to feel very uncomfortable. Let's use some common sense, also known as a Stone Age trait, at this point. It is cute for a three-year-old boy to blurt this out to a female playmate. It is not necessarily cute when an eight-year-old boy does the same thing. Somewhere between the two ages, three and eight, the child needs to be told that expressing spontaneous love to someone outside of one's immediate family is to be done only after great forethought and always with prudence, another Stone Age virtue. Besides, in today's hyper-paranoid school system... Expressing love toward a classmate may result in reassignment to a third-grade re-education camp somewhere in the Mojave Desert. The same applies to the expression of any emotion. The lack of emotional self-control is uncivilized, again, antisocial. The exercise of emotional self-control is civilized, pro-social. Therefore, I am arguing for nothing more radical than the restoration of civility to the training of children. What a remarkably, stunningly radical idea. The other day I was in an airport waiting area and a mother was following her toddler as he ran up and down the rows of occupied seats yelling incoherently, causing a general disturbance. Uh, Mom was following this child, smiling all the while, as if she thought that was cute. No doubt she would agree with my critic. Her child wants to run and yell in a public place. Therefore, he should be allowed. Now, this, this is new parenting, folks. This is the result of the professional parenting propaganda that came out of the 1960s to wit children should be allowed to freely express their feelings. If they're not allowed to do so, psychological scarring will develop and so on and so forth. So this mother believes that since her child wants 
to run and yell in a public place. He should be allowed to run and yell. And she should run grinning after him, doubling the disturbance to the people who are seated in the gate area of this particular airport, reading, holding, quiet conversation, thinking, sleeping, whatever it is they're doing. I am certain that the Stone Age mother would have removed her child from the area very, very quickly, insisted that he calm down, and taught him to sit quietly with her in public situations. And everyone, including her child, would have benefited from this Stone Age mother's repressive, draconian attitude toward her responsibilities as a parent. This is John Roseman, your host. The show is called Because I Said So, and it's called Because I Said So, Because I Said So. If you want to call us, the phone number is 404-419-6499. Email us at radio at roseman.com. Or if you would rather tweet, it's at John K. Roseman. We will be back in a moment with more of this parenting heresy. Stay with us. the show your host john rosemond our call-in number if you'd like to join the show with a question or comment is 404-419-6499 404-419-6499 and um we do have a caller on the line i'm, I'm going to postpone taking the call for a minute or two because i want to tell a story uh, the place was a church in south carolina saturday morning i'm about to do a three-hour seminar on uh, effective discipline and a woman walks up to me in the lobby, which is where I hang out, meeting and greeting before talk. And she told me that she had a five-year-old who wouldn't do anything she told her to do. And I said, uh, well, I, I'm not going to get into an argument with you, and I don't mean to, but I have to tell you that that isn't true. And she looked at me with this semi-startled expression. She said, what do you mean it's not true? I said, well, you don't have a five-year-old who won't do what she's told. She said, yes, I do, John. I said, no, ma'am, here's a fact. This is a fact that's not a theory. Children do what they're told 80% of the time, and that is worst possible scenario. Worst possible scenario. Now, 80% of the time for a five-year-old, because a five-year-old is still in training, and this is what a child's training is all about is accepting authority and doing what people who are in positions of legitimate authority tell you to do. 80% of the time, children do what they're told. She said, well, well, John, then my child defies the statistic because my child won't do what I tell her to do ever about anything. And I said, no, 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 no. Your, your child does not defy the statistic. The problem is not your child. I'm going to venture 
and I don't mean this to be insulting, that the problem is you. She said, how so? I said, because you're doing what I venture to propose. You're doing what 99% of today's parents do. They think they're telling. They're not. They're pleading, bargaining, bribing, cajoling, reasoning, explaining, encouraging, and promising. And when none of that works, then they threaten, then they get red in the face, then they scream, then they feel bad, then they purge their guilt by doing something special for children who have just disobeyed, and then they go right back to pleading, bargaining, bribing, cajoling, reasoning, explaining, encouraging, promising, threatening, getting red in the face, and so on and so forth. And around and around you go, and you will stop this merry-go-round when you learn how to tell your daughter what you want her to do. So, with that introduction, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, did the story relate to you at all? Sadly, very much so. <laughs> well, tell me what your question is. Um, in general, um, do you have a rule of thumb when it comes to first-time obedience? And I, I mean, I have a couple stories if you need them, but um, just like a general guideline of what we could go off of to get that first-time obedience and okay. that training, of course. Okay. All right. Great. Great question. And it, it's a perfect uh, fit with my, my, uh, the story I told at the beginning of this segment. Um, mm -hmm. How old are your children, Carrie? I have a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-month-old, and all boys. All boys, and they do not obey when you, do you tell, or do you plead, bargain, bribe, cajole, reason, explain, encourage, and promise? Um, my husband and I do not bribe, but um, I think I I tell and, and then maybe plead and bargain and <laughs> all the other stuff. So I'm not sure. What do you mean by tell? Well, let me give you an example. Here's telling a child to pick up his toys. I want you to pick up your toys. I want them all picked up right now and moved to another room. I'll be back in a few minutes to see that it's done. And you turn around and you walk away. Now, here's telling on the part of a parent in the year 2015 Honey, uh, mommy's girlfriend is coming over and I'd like to serve her coffee and pastries in this room. And it would really be helpful to me if you would pick up these toys and move them somewhere else. Will you do that for mommy? Okay. I'm the latter of what you just said. You are the I, I latter. The, okay. Yes. <laughs> and, and this is, and, and don't feel bad about it, uh, Carrie, because the, the latter description applies to 99 and that may be a conservative figure. Uh, of 99% of today's parents. Um, and, and what people don't realize, what parents today don't realize, is that obedience is a response to proper the proper presentation of authority on the part of the parent. I'm going to say that again. Obedience on the part of a child is a response to the proper presentation of authority on the part of the child. It is my observation, and it is confirmed by the overwhelming majority of parents, that today's parents do not properly present authority to their children. Again, 
instead of telling their children what they want them to do, using the fewest words possible, using no explanation whatsoever, they instead engage in explanation, pleading, bargaining, bribing, reasoning, cajoling, so on and so on and so forth. And what they get is a response from the child that is predicted on the basis of that sort of approach. When you do not properly present authority in your body language, in your tone of voice, in the use of an economy of language and so on and so forth, you are not going to get the response that you want to get. When you properly present authority, honey, I want these toys picked up, uh, all of them right now, uh, move somewhere else. I'll be back in a few minutes to see that it's done. You are uh, far more likely to get first-time obedience. I was at a, uh, Carrie, I was at a, uh, a conference in uh, South Carolina on Kiowa Island a couple of summers ago, and I was speaking over a three-day period of time, and I talked about this proper presentation of authority, which I call leadership speech or alpha speech. I talked about it on day one. And I made it clear that it's not only the words you use, it's your entire presentation. It's your body language. It's your facial expression. It's your tone of voice. Uh, it is not, for example, bending over, scrunching down, getting down to your child's level, grabbing your knees, uh, that sort of thing that so many parents today do because they've read that this is the way that they should do it and some evil publication like Parents Magazine. And uh, on the second day, after I talked about that on the first day, on the second day of the conference, probably more than a dozen people came up to me and said, John, it is already working. This is amazing. Exactly, because a child's natural response to the proper presentation of authority on the part of a parent, and I will again say it, a child's natural response to the proper presentation of authority on the part of a parent is obedience. Another story, a couple of years ago in a seminar, I looked at a guy, he was uh, 75 years old, he, he was simply there as an observer, he's a grandfather. I turned to him and I said, uh, Don was his name. Don, were you an obedient child? And this is out of the blue. We had not practiced this. Don, were you an obedient child? He said, yeah, I was obedient. I, he said, I was occasionally mischievous. I tried to get away with, with things when my parents weren't looking, but they gave me an instruction. I obeyed. I said, well, what methods, techniques, and strategies did they use to get you to obey? And he said, there, there were no methods, there were no techniques or strategies. Uh, the expectation was just perfectly clear. And what he was referring to, Carrie, is exactly what I am talking about, the proper presentation of authority, leadership speech, alpha speech. With the proper presentation of authority, you stand fully upright, you use an economy of words. You do not give explanations because explanations stimulate argument. The minute you tell the child why you want him to pick up the toys, he begins to argue with you 
about whether or not he should really have to based on your explanation. 100% true. <laughs> okay. And so you yeah. don't use explanation. You don't explain yourself, which forces a child, by the way, and this is why people in my generation, I'm 67 years old, uh, people in my generation, every single one of us will tell you we heard because I said so on a fairly regular basis. Why did we hear because I said so? Because our parents did not explain their instructions to us. And when you don't explain your instruction to a child, it causes the child to ask either why or why not. At which point, the authoritative answer is because I said so or because that is the decision I have made or because I have just told you to do it. And then you turn around and walk away. Another part of this authoritative presentation is you do not engage the child in conversation about the instruction that you have just given because that conversation, again, is going to lead invariably to an argument. And so you turn around and walk away. And I call this pulling the plug on the power struggle. So let me put it all together for you. First of all, you don't do what professionals tell you to do, which is bend over and get down to your child's level. You present yourself in a fully upright position. That's number one. Number two, you use an economy of words. Before you go into an instructional situation, ask yourself, what are the fewest words I can use to convey this instruction? Number three, you give no explanation. Number four, you turn around and walk away. Carrie, I guarantee you, I guarantee it, if you adopt this approach, you will begin to experience first-time obedience. It's not about consequences, although consequences are sometimes necessary. You should not rely upon them. You should rely on this authoritative leadership speech presentation that I'm talking about. Folks, uh, we're at the end of this segment. Carrie, thank you for a great question. My name is John Rosemond. If you want to call us, the phone number is 404-419-6499. Email us at radio at rosemond.com. Or if you would rather tweet, it's at John K. Rosemond. And uh, stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. From American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now, once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show. Your host, John Rosemond. The show is Because I Said So on American Family Radio. Our phone number, if you are interested in calling with a question or a comment, is 404-419-6499. In uh, 2008, that would be seven years ago, Thomas Nelson, publishers out of Nashville, published a book titled The Diseasing of America's Children. The authors of that book were yours truly, John Rosemond, and a functional medicine pediatrician from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a good friend of mine named 
Dubose Ravenel, a quintessential uh, southern and more specifically South Carolina low country name. Uh, and um, what we did in the diseasing of America's children, it was really an expose. What we did was expose the lack of good science behind the diagnoses of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and bipolar disorder of childhood, and uh, proposed a radical new theory concerning uh, these diagnoses and why these behaviors, the behaviors associated with these diagnoses, have become so prevalent in American uh, schools and American homes since the 1950s, and then went on past that to propose a equally radical treatment plan for kids who exhibit the behaviors in question, a treatment plan that uh, Dr. Ravenel and I had separately and together worked out and field tested uh, with highly successful results. Uh, I have on the phone with me Dr. DuBose Ravenel, functional medicine pediatrician from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and uh, we're going to talk some about these issues. Uh, Bose, how are you doing? Glad to be here. So um, you're in functional medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, functional medicine pediatrician. Explain to our listeners what functional medicine is all about. Sure. Functional medicine is a an approach to medical care or medicine where one looks for underlying causes of things that are causing the symptoms that lead up to diagnoses as opposed to primarily identifying simply a diagnosis and then in the mainstream world, for the most part, relying on um, pharmaceutical products or drugs to relieve the symptoms. Functional medicine, on the other hand, looks for underlying causes and puts in place primarily natural things, nutrients, foods, etc., vitamins, to correct various nutritional imbalances and so on that affect cell function. Uh, the best example would be, let's take a, a patient who comes in with a child who has several diagnoses, attention deficit disorder, depression, anxiety, and irritable bowel syndrome, uh, all four considered to be, quote, comorbid diagnoses, all existing in the same patient. Mainstream medicine sees those as four discrete entities. Functional medicine sees and assumes that all of these emanate or are caused by a, a, some combination of underlying forces which cause all of them, and all of them can be remediated generally by identifying those causes and then putting in place natural solutions to them and, for the most part, either avoiding or minimizing the use of drugs to begin with. So traditional medicine... Uh, focuses on symptoms and uses drugs to simply suppress or control symptoms, whereas functional medicine uh, focuses on the root cause of the problem and uh, as opposed to just the behavioral uh, expressions of the problem itself. And when you talk about uh, the kind of treatments that you use, Bose, and, and you know, you're you're in your practice, I'm aware, treating kids who have been 
diagnosed with things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and uh, oppositional defiant disorder and bipolar disorder of childhood uh, either have been diagnosed by other people or uh, would be candidates for those diagnoses. How are what, what are you doing? What what is treatment wise? Uh, B flesh that out a little bit for for our listeners and tell us exactly how you approach these kinds of issues. Sure. Well, just to take the ADD or ADHD as the probably the mo- the most prevalent such label or diagnosis, if you will. Uh, in my old world life, someone came in and you are impelled or you have, you're advised by the professional society to do a very, quote, careful diagnosis. What that really means is to go through a checklist, check off symptoms, and if you have an arbitrary number, six out of nine, so forth, so on, in whatever year you're looking at, it just fits the criteria, and that is a, quote, diagnosis. Uh, functional medicine, uh, because insurance often will only pay if you use these labels, we sometimes will play the game for that purpose, but the, the, the actual what we call something is irrelevant. What matters is what are the problem symptom behaviors, if you will, and what are the underlying causes. So once I have a patient who has, we've identified the problematic behaviors and or emotions, we can then address, okay, what are the things going on that are in all likelihood causing these things? And then we can put in place a combination of interventions which will, uh, in many cases, in fact, in most cases, will provide uh, significant to complete relief within a reasonably short period of time. Well, let's let's uh, focus on, let's say, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. What, in your estimation and experience, are the sorts of environmental issues that are at work there? What are the uh, what are the underlying problems, as you have discovered in your practice? Well, on a macro kind of global view, I would say uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, basically emanates or stems from some combination of the following. Genetic factors, and I, when as soon as I say genetics, there is no such thing as a gene, quote, for ADD or, for that matter, for almost any other behavioral, emotional, psychiatric syndrome. There are numerous genes, dozens, perhaps hundreds, that can have an impact on body biochemical processes that will make the individual more likely to develop these patterns. So there are a lot of genetic influences, but they always interact with environmental ones, which ultimately are the predominantly responsible agents. For example, someone can have uh, uh, genetic variants called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or abbreviated SNIP or SNPs for short, that are there are thousands of them. There are probably a uh, hundred that are known. There are probably 99 in something called methylation. So suffice it to say they're a biochemical, every cell in the body affected by gene variants that make one have a hard time um, de- detoxing or, or metabolizing toxins, chemicals, or drugs. Every drug is a chemical in a sense. It's not a natural substance. And so when you have the genetic influences, you are more prone to have side effects from all the different things that, that hit your body. Well, so you're talking about a child's diet primarily. That goes back to diet because 
20% of our destiny and our health is determined by our genes, which we cannot change. The good news is that 80 the other 80%, some actually the CDC says 90% of our destiny is determined by the environment, and specifically the, the impact of, of nutrients primarily, foods, uh, nutrient substances, on the gene function so that whatever genes we have which we can't change, we can choose to alter the function of those genes, the ones that are causing harm or would, we can selectively take nutrients that will suppress them. Conversely, those genes that are impaired in their function that would otherwise produce a healthy balance in our bodies, we can take things that will uh, enhance them. One of the things that I, uh, I talk about in front of my audiences a lot is the fact that in the 1950s, it was not unusual to find first-grade classes uh, populated by 50, 60, 70 kids taught by one teacher. And these women that I encounter today who taught these uh, classes that would be considered criminally overcrowded today, universally, without any exception, and I've run into dozens of these women around the country, all testify to the fact that they did not have significant discipline problems. And one of the things that, that I point out to my audiences is, look, huge difference between then and now. Kids were eating fresh vegetables back then. Not all kids, but there was a, a much greater percentage of American children eating fresh vegetables as opposed to the diet of today's child, which is loaded with sugar, loaded with preservatives, loaded with artificial colorings and so on and so forth. And it was very... Um, encouraging to me that the journal Pediatrics, which is the most respected journal in your field, a couple of years ago published a paper that seemed to lend tremendous credence to the idea that diet played a significant factor in ADHD behavior. That's absolutely true. And uh, the amazing thing, though, is that in, in the face of that, the, main, the, the majority of practicing physicians, pediatricians, family physicians who do pediatric practice in their overall focus, uh, pretty much either unaware of and or, for the most part, ignore that. I have patients come in all the time who come but to trying to have the child avoid being put on medicine, or on the other hand, those that are on it, parents wanting to help the child, if possible, to find a way to get them off the medicine. And I always ask them, has any pediatrician or family prescribing doctor ever asked you any questions about diet and nutrition? And I've never had anybody who didn't say, no, they haven't. Well, it's amazing to me that uh, people in the pediatric and psychological professions uh, ignore research that is inconvenient to the purposes of their practices. And uh, you've just pointed that out uh, quite, quite succinctly. So uh, we're going to come back after our break and continue this conversation with Dr. DeBose Ravenel, good friend of mine. I call him Bose. He's a functional medicine pediatrician in practice in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The show is Because I Said So. The number is 404-419-6499. If you'd like to join us, I'm your host, John Roseman. We'll be back in a few minutes.
Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The program is called Because I Said So, provocative and often fascinating look at an analysis of parenting in today's world. And I have with us a good friend of mine and a co-author, as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. DuBose Ravenel, a functional medicine pediatrician from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. If you've just joined us, uh, the background of this is that Dr. Ravenel and I, in 2008, uh, wrote and Thomas Nelson Publishers out of Nashville, reputable Christian publisher, published a book titled The Diseasing of America's Children, an expose concerning the lack of science and the lack of a uh, truly effective treatment approach within the medical and psychological professions uh, with regard to three primary diagnoses, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and bipolar disorder of childhood. And um, for more information about the book, you can go to Thomas Nelson's website, you can go to Amazon.com, or you can go to my website, JohnRoseman.com. Bose, one of the things that I might as well get around to it right away asking you about is autism, because I'm aware from conversations with you that uh, you uh, are seeing, treating uh, a lot, relatively speaking, of kids who either bring that diagnosis, whose parents bring that diagnosis to your office, or who qualify in some way, shape, or form for that diagnosis. And um, the, the reason I want to explore this is because it has been a source of fascination and to some degree perplexity on my part for the past 10 years, watching the dramatic increase in the incidence per capita of autism in the general childhood population since 1975. If I'm not mistaken, the diagnosis was given to one in 5,000 children in 1975, and today the diagnosis is being given to one in 68 children. And uh, is this, my, my question to you, you're the expert here, uh, I, I'm, the, uh, I'm, I'm the guy who's looking through the glass darkly at this phenomenon, does this statistic, this, this incredible increase in the incidence of autism in childhood populations, does it reflect a true increase in the problem, or is it just a matter of reporting? That's a great question. The, there are many who would say that's the $64 million question. There are experts on both sides, some of whom say it's simply a reflection of increased recognition. On the other hand, uh, an equally large and convinced uh, number, including myself, are convinced that it represents an absolutely clear increase, substantial increase, in the occurrence of the actual problem beyond increasing recognition or diagnostic criteria shifts. Specifically, uh, the 2010 figures uh, from the FDA Consumer Update database, one in 68 overall, but bear in mind, among males, 
it's four times higher in males and females. So among males, one could extrapolate and assume that probably in the range of one in 40 males. Um, so, and there's Stephanie Seneff is a noted researcher in biochemistry and all, and she is convinced and has written articles pointing uh, that in all likelihood within the next 20 years or so, the incidence may become something like one in two. Well, what is going on here in your estimation? What 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 is driving this? Well, I think there are two factors. I do believe there is some degree of a broadening of criteria. For example, the uh, DSM-5 2013 iteration declared that all uh, autism now will all be lumped under one term, autism spectrum disorder, ASD. That term includes what used to be called, quote, autism, if you will, severe autism, but also includes the wide variety of children with varying degrees of the same problematic behaviors or emotions so that it's a broadening of the term. So therefore, there's undoubtedly, in my mind, a combination of a real increase compounded with a broadening of the diagnostic kind of category catch-all, if you will. And our listeners need to know that DSM refers to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is often called the Bible of the Mental Health Professions. It is uh, It contains the criteria that guide the diagnosis of any psychiatric, supposedly psychiatric disorder. One in two children in 20 years. This, uh, this is something that happens with any diagnosis, is it not, Bose, that over time, the mental health professions expand the diagnosis, expand the parameters of it, so that it begins to capture more and more and more people. And you've acknowledged that, that there is this expansion in the parameters of the diagnosis of autism, but there's more to it than just that. You seem to believe, if I'm reading you correctly, that there is an actual increase in some problem of one kind or another. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, as, a, as an interesting factoid, on June 28th, I googled autism, and there were 69 million articles referred to. Wow. So the attention to it is exponentially exploding. And um, the problem is to sort out what, what the reason why. Uh, among the reasons, of course, is that the, the, the mainstream medical world in which I labored for 31 years of private practice and 11 years of academics thrives on diagnosis being tied into payments. So whatever being paid for will be diagnosed for. That's a brutal reality, but it's true. And, and it's even more true with Obamacare. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing is that there are there were 17,000 codes a doctor had to pick from to describe a diagnosis to, to get paid until the current iteration of the ICDM, International Classification of Diseases, it's gone up from 17,000 to some 64,000 possibilities. Now, what you're talking about is the reporting aspect of this, but what I want to get to is what do you think in cases of what I will call, uh, for the moment, legitimate autism, what is your sense of what's going on here? Uh, in my view, it's it's almost certainly combi a combination of 
Number one would be the toxins, chemicals, foods that people consume, and which are the toxins and chemicals. The, uh, there have been studies confirmed that the average adult, the different studies show 160 to 220 chemicals in their body. Do a lot of these chemicals, you know, the mother is eating the food, do a lot of these chemicals pass through the placental lining? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this is why we're seeing autism behaviors in infants. Yes, and uh, that explains some that are, quote, congenital. The fact is that some of those babies, before they're ever born, are definitely affected by the toxins in the mother. And the toxin field also includes the, the V word. You get into huge controversy, which is an understatement, when one starts discussing the role or lack thereof role of vaccines and contributing to, if not causing autism. Ah, you've just, uh, you've just opened a can of worms talking about vaccines. Yep, that's true. I mean, this has become a political issue. Uh, Donald Trump has weighed in on this. Uh, Newt Gingrich, I remember, weighed in on it a few years back when he was making his bid for the uh, nomination. And uh, Ben Carson has certainly weighed in on it. And, uh, I mean, this is a real hot-button issue. You want to comment on it? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue over which there is not likely to be any time in, in our lifetime, probably, any kind of unified consensus agreement. The reality is that the idea that vaccines, quote, cause autism is a grossly oversimplified and very inaccurate conclusion. The, the opposing idea that we don't know what causes autism, but we know it's not caused by vaccines, first of all, is a logical contradiction in itself, which doesn't take much reflection to see why that's true. And secondly, it's a gross distortion of it's a much more nuanced um, situation. Well, what is your general advice? Because we've got about a minute and a half left what is your general advice, in, in, and hopefully you can do this in 25 words or less, this is a challenge I realize, but what is your general advice to parents concerning vaccines? Because, I mean, let's face it, you cannot see every child in America. Uh, these kids are going to be going to traditional medicine pediatricians, and the overwhelming majority of them are going to be recommending vaccines. So what's your recommendations in, in 25 words or less? Uh, I still believe in giving the, the core vaccines. I think that uh, for those parents who have a family history of or a particular concern about autism risk for their child, it is reasonable to try to get some accommodation to spacing out the vaccine schedule, to doing things to prepare the child's immune system for prior to getting the vaccines and so on. Well, Bo's fascinating interview, and I tell you what, I'd like to have you back on the show uh, within the next few weeks or months. Hope you will consent to that. All right. And uh, once again, my guest has been Dr. DuBose Ravenel, functional medicine pediatrician out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He and I wrote a book in 2008 titled The Diseasing of America's Children, published by Thomas Nelson. And you can uh, find it on the bookshelves. You can find out more by going to johnrosemond.com. The show is called Because I Said So. My name is John Roseman. If you want to comment, radio at roseman.com. And be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? Because I said so. 
from Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.